go any further. Father, as we believe you spoke through the Psalms and enabled us to see into the mind, the devotion, the emotions of those who were trying as best as they could to follow you. So will you speak to us in our condition, in our situations today? For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, keep that open, would you? And did you notice the one question in the psalm? It's there in verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Can we? Should we? Uh, We might add at this time of year, how can we go on doing Christmas in a secular society? What a foreign land of Winterval and Santa we live in today. Can we continue to sing Christmas carols in our schools in Clapham Junction, in the Northcote Road, in a post-Christian, some would say a new pre-Christian pagan culture? Now, that's the relevance for us as we read this psalm. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How do we do Christmas? And in particular, at this time of year, most urgently, how do we do carol services? Well, we don't need to guess where this psalm came from. God's people are in exile in Babylon in the years following 587 BC, the fall of Jerusalem. And the waters of Babylon was the system of canals that fed the Euphrates River, where they were possibly slave laborers on the canals. One writer comments on this psalm, every line of it is alive with pain, whose intensity grows with each verse to its appalling climax. But for us, how do we live as Christians in a secular society? That's the application of it for us today. And more immediately, how do we do Christmas in today's Britain? Well, the psalmist gives us a few pointers. And the first is this. Uh, With, well, certainly regret, and for us maybe even with repentance. Just look at verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. We sat down, we wept. This isn't where we were. This isn't where we used to be. This, is, this isn't where we should be, was what they were saying. And maybe we feel a little bit like that as we approach another Christmas. It might be tempting to take a superior attitude to the world around us, the commercialized and media-driven hype to scorn the claim by a high street chain to have launched Christmas two weeks ago, to mock the nth rerun of Only Fools and Horses. But the more appropriate response is regret, perhaps remorse, maybe even repentance. After all, it's our generation that allowed the loss of meaning to Christmas, the fact that so few children today know its meaning. The Jews hung up their harps 
This wasn't a time for superficial jollity as they thought back to their festivals in Jerusalem. It was a time to weep what they had lost, the loss of truth and meaning. But there was another reason why they hung up their harps, and it's in the next verse, verse 2, which reminds us to approach Christmas with a certain degree of resistance. Look at verse 2. There on the poplars we hung our harps for this reason. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, go on, give us one of the songs of Zion. In the sort of way that actually the secular world still wants Christmas carols. They'll sing them on the football terraces. But you see, there's a certain level of resistance here. They're refusing, they're stubbornly refusing to expose the name and praise of God to ridicule. Uh, Here's a relief from that time. It's a picture from Sennacherib's palace. Three prisoners of war playing their harps as they are frog-marched by an armed soldier in captivity. Puppets, play for us. The lesson I draw is this. It's good, of course, to make the most of the opportunity Christmas offers. We can tell of Christ. We can tell the good news of his coming like no other time in the year. Make the most of it and milk it for all it's worth. Play along with the world up to a point. But we must be careful not to collude with the world's trivializing of Christmas. For example, allowing the popular idea that Christmas can be dismissed as merely a time for the children. It is, of course, a time for the children, and wonderfully and gloriously, but it isn't only a time for children. If we have all-age services on Christmas Day, as we do, It must address the adult visitor as well as children. Now thirdly, he's already told us we remembered Zion, but in the next verses, look at verses 5 and 6, the psalmist repeats three more times. He tells us live with remembrance. For us that means approach Christmas with remembrance. If I, look at verse 5, if I forget you, There's the next reference. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Uh, Remembering someone is occasionally rather vital. The famous conductor, Sir Thomas Beecham, was once at a VIP reception, and he was in conversation with a lady he recognized, but for the life of him, he couldn't remember, in the moment, who she was. He began desperately fishing for a clue to her identity. So, are you well? Yes, thank you. And the family? Yes, they're fine. And your husband, is he well? Yes, very well, thank you. And is he still in the same line of business? Yes, he's still king. (laughs) At Christmas, 
we remember the most important person in history. He's the king of kings. Our highest joy, to use the psalmist's words about Jerusalem. And we do something here that we don't do at any other time of the year. On Christmas Eve, and again on Christmas morning, twice in the space of a few hours, we remember the death of Christ. We don't have two Holy Communion services on successive days like that, within a few hours of each other, at any other time of year. It's even more extraordinary when you think when we're doing it. We celebrate the birth of Christ by remembering the death of Christ. How odd, and yet how appropriate. Because the message of Christmas is, to you is born this day a saviour. Again, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Again, the apostle, this is a true saying worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, this is the reason for Christmas, to save sinners. That's the meaning of Christmas, supremely In his saving death. Not his birth or his life or his words or his works. But in his death for us. That's where we find the meaning, the purpose of his coming to earth in human form. So my little application of this, the pointer. While the shops and the media continue in ignorance of why we will be gathering here. Let us at least not forget. Jesus didn't say, do nativities or decorate your homes in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do stockings or give gifts in remembrance of me. He didn't say, visit relatives or eat turkey in remembrance of me. Lovely as all of those things are, and I'm looking forward to every one of them. But he didn't say that. What he did say was, do this in remembrance of me. So let's live with remembrance. And not only with remembrance, but also, fourthly, with request. Verse 7. At the same time as remembering, the psalmist also asks God to remember. Now, it's not, of course, that God has lost his memory, but it's a way of talking about bringing his prayers to God. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on that day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they had cried. Tear it down to its foundations. The Edomites were always a thorn in Israel's side, prophesying doom. Like the secular atheists of our own day telling us the Christian faith is a it out, like this microphone. They pounced on Lord George Carey a fortnight ago, didn't they? He didn't say this would be the last generation of Christians. That's, of course, what the media want to hear. What he said was what I have often reminded us of, that in every generation... The church is only one generation away from extinction. Of course it is. Unless we stir 
ourselves. And what better opportunity than now? To do two things together. To tell people about Christ and to tell Christ about people. To witness and to pray. To invite and share Christ and to pray for friends, for relatives, for people uh, who are colleagues and neighbors and so on. What a great way to start, incidentally, in those 36 hours of prayer. And thank you for those of you who took that seriously. I want to begin Christmas with request. But there's finally another reason why we should pray. We not only tend to get sentimental at Christmas, we also tend to lose inhibition. Drink too much, say too much. So we should live with, and my final R is, with realism, and I might have added, with restraint. Verse 8. You see, it wasn't only the Edomites that the Jews resented, they were even more bitter about their captors, the Babylonians. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What are we to make of those last two verses? Well, first, the Psalms express unvarnished emotion. Recognize that. Uh, One writer put it, we're not given what the psalmist might say in a cooler moment. It comes to us white hot. But here's a few thoughts. First, repressing our negative emotions, because we all have negative emotions, repressing them doesn't solve them. We just go on indulging or even amplifying them. Better to vent them. Lord, this is what I'm feeling. If by doing so we draw out the poison like a wasp sting or snake bite. And better to tell it to the one person who can take it and where it does no harm to the hearer. He's not rattled by our tempers, as our families might be, and sometimes are at Christmas. Poison it is. The distinction is whether we tell God what we're feeling in order to indulge these demon thoughts or to expunge them. The distinction isn't whether the sentiment is worthy or not. It is not. The psalm tells us that if this is what we're feeling, the psalmist understands us and he's telling us God understands what we're feeling. Better we tell him because he knows anyway. Take the poison to the only one who can neutralize it. Because by disowning our feelings, we'll fail to face him and poisoned we will remain. I want to go further. How understandable this emotion was. The Babylonians did murder the babies of their enemies. And may the same happen to you as a sentiment we might well feel had it happened to us. 
or to our own families, like those of the Jews in the terrible story of Bromberg concentration camp in World War II. Their children were taken by their feet and their heads smashed against a wall. But at a milder level, would we not understand a woman who through miscarriage or cot death or inability to conceive or because she was unmarried feels robbed of a child? She may well struggle with feelings that jump up at her as she goes about in Nappy Valley. May they disappear. She might be fighting to drive out of her mind. But I want to go further. It must be interpreted in the light of Old and New Testament controls on loving our enemies. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, which is quoted in the New Testament, but actually it's an Old Testament verse, which I only mention because of the common idea that the Old Testament God is a vengeful God and the New Testament God is a loving God. The sentiment of verse 9 is not wrong in itself. It's just wrong coming from us. It's a reminder that even though we may not judge or repay evil for evil, God will and is just to do so. Righteous retribution is unworthy coming from us, but not from the Holy One. From him it's to be expected. And there's just one last desperate hope. That one, one more loving and more holy than we might. Is this conceivable? No, surely not. Yes, is it, though inconceivably unlikely, improbable as it might seem, is there one who might take the punishment for us? That would be grace indeed. The fact that God will repay evil with punishment should drive us to the one who suffered the punishment for us and for those whom we think have wronged us. And the fact that it's God himself who takes that punishment that he himself meets out, well, that would be glorious grace beyond words. He came as a baby in human form. The father so loving the world that he gave his only son, knowing that he would be murdered. The son giving himself in full foreknowledge of the self-sacrifice it would entail. In a desperate twist of the Christmas story, I think a part that we're often reluctant to tell. The baby born to save the world was accompanied by a host of other babies born at the same time. Dashed to their deaths by hatred, which is a part of the human condition. The psalmist, according to my writer, Again, says this, the psalm is an impassioned plea beyond all ignoring or toning down. Not just against all cruelty, but against all comfortable views of human wickedness, either with regard to the judgment it deserves or to the legacy it leaves 
and not least in relation to the cost to God of laying its enmity and bitterness to rest. Did you catch those words? A plea against all comfortable views of wickedness. We might add a plea against a cosy Christmas. So let's do Christmas with realism and with personal restraint. We can't bring back babies killed in ancient Israel or in concentration camps, but we could help to bring this little boy home and others like him, refugees from Syria in Lebanon. That picture was taken just a few days ago by Alex, Med- uh, Alex Day, who visited us on his return uh, with Medair from Lebanon. All our Christmas giving this Christmas is going to families like this. Thank God that unlike the world around us, that's like a ship at sea without rudder or compass, we can approach Christmas with serious but joyful purpose. So let's take time this month. Tell him we're sorry about our society and our part in its seasonal folly. Approach Christmas with a certain amount of regret, maybe even repentance. Approach it with a level, a degree of resistance. Don't give in altogether to the secular Christmas. Keep a steady and a sober head and look for opportunities. Remember the true Christmas. Remind ourselves and any that we're in contact with. And let's bring them, neighbours, families, to Christ in our prayer requests and to carol services where we have opportunity. And finally, let's approach Christmas with real restraint. For us, it's a time to show compassion. And we of all people can face Christmas with realism because we're the ones who know the real purpose of him who came and lived and died and rose again. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's do a little act of remembrance uh, right now.